You know what the best part of being a pastor is? I'll tell you right now. It's being invited into everyone's lives. I think I, I can't say it any more simply than that. To be trusted, to be invited in, especially during times of distress. Um, I suppose it's when you usually invite the pastor in, you know, in the times of distress. But to be allowed to see the vulnerabilities of, of other people, to be allowed to be part of those difficult times is, is just an amazing thing. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's my favorite part of being a pastor. Um, during lockdown, there is so much going on right now. Uh, in, in addition to just being locked down, in addition to not being able to connect as we normally do, there are lots of people in our community who are going through additional things. Some of our, our community have been really sick on top of being locked down, not necessarily COVID positive, although may, maybe they haven't been tested, I don't know. But they're very sick, and they're going through that on top of the other worries and maybe worried about whether they have it or not, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, one uh, lady who is also sick, also her mother went into the hospital, and she was all trying to decide how to deal with that because she couldn't go anywhere anymore and she's immune compromised. And a layer upon layer of worry and concern going on here. Um, we have one lady who is going through a cancer scare and um, has had several remissions and it's back again and um, trying to decide whether to even treat uh, a third time if that really made any sense. And then happily, she got some good news that it seems to be pulling back into remission again. But, but think about that journey through all of that. You know, We just heard about Bob, who had a, a tumor and had to have that removed. And the worry about that, whether it's malignant, whether it's benign, did they get it all, this, and good news again. But think about that journey going through. And think about Anne by herself in their home, waiting on every word from the doctor, every word from Bob. We had one of our members lose his mother during this last month, and uh, again, to cancer, and the whole journey that that family took, moving down into the abyss, and the responsibility that he took, I was so proud of him, the responsibility to be there for his mother and to do a lot of the things on hospice that needed to be done um, as part of giving back to his mom. And he told me that it really brought his family together in a way that he didn't expect, connected him and his siblings in a way that they haven't been connected in years. I get to watch and be a part of all these people's lives, all of your lives. I get to watch them walk through doors, you know, the doors between one world and another world. Sometimes to get stuck in the doorway, which is the worst possible thing sometimes. Not able, one foot in one world, one foot in another. Here was the life I had. It's moving into something else that we really don't know, don't understand. But walking through doors, transitioning from one world to another, and to be able to watch and walk with them to a certain extent. It's their journey. I can't take it. But to be invited in is a huge deal. And with all that we're transitioning through individually, we're all transitioning together through this pandemic. As Marion said, we had a normal. There's going to be a new normal. We don't know what that's going to look like. Right now, we're right in the doorway. Right now, we're right in that space, that threshold between these two worlds. 
And for some of us, there are doorways within doorways, transitions within transitions, wheels within wheels, because all of these things are happening at once. And each one of them is its own journey. Each one of them is this transition between. I love the way that the Hebrews put it. They said that human life is lived between heaven and earth. And if you think about what that means for a second, our entire lives, this entire existence is lived between the unseen oneness and perfect connection of heaven, of God, of unseen spirit, and the visible individual form and function and diversity and complexity and contradiction and sometimes absurdity of of physical life. And the Hebrews said that the job of the human was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, to merge the two, to be human, individual, form, function, to, to live within that complexity and diversity, but at the same time have the awareness of the unity, of the oneness of everything that is unseen, and to make decisions based on that. That is the highest purpose of a human, living between heaven and earth, but bringing the two together at that threshold, at that doorway between heaven and earth. If you look at it that way, all life is lived between two worlds. All life is lived with one foot in each. All life is lived in the doorway, on the threshold. All life is lived with the realization that we don't have control, that we are vulnerable when it comes right down to it. If we're really aware of what's going on, we understand all these things at the same time. And the ecstasy and the joy and the connection comes from that willingness to move into the vulnerability. So many of these things we talked about last week, but to try to put a little bit different spin on it, to hopefully get us to the place where we understand this so well that it starts to become a place where we can live our lives in that kind of state. Again, like the Hebrew bride living between the, the betrothal and the, and the wedding, a period of one to two years, At any moment, the groom can come and claim her and take her back to his father's house. The anticipation of the new life that is to come, the fulfillment of her as wife and mother, and yet the leaving of the world that she's known all her life that has sustained her. To live each moment as if it were the last, because each moment could be the last. That state of in-betweenness, that state of living right in the doorway, And the threshold between two worlds is exactly what the Hebrews meant when they called their nation Israel the bride of Yahweh. And it's exactly what the church meant when it called itself the bride of Christ. These images are not for nothing. These images have been around for thousands of years because they communicate, if we're aware, of the reality of our lives our experience with our God, as it could be, at least. Now, this is what has been called by many liminal space. If you've heard the word liminal, um, it comes from the Latin word limen, which uh, means threshold. It really was the threshold of the door. And this idea of liminal space, it's the same word that we use as the base for the word limit. So limit comes from limon. It's, it's related because there's a limit, there's a threshold. And so that idea of a threshold is what Richard Rohr has talked so articulately about. In fact, he was all about it this week, as we, if you, any of you are reading his meditations. And I wanted to read just a little bit of uh, 
of several of those meditations to see how they can bring us into more clarity about what this liminal space is, what it means to be in the doorway and to remain in the doorway. He writes, liminal space is an inner state and sometimes an outer situation where we can begin to think and act in new ways. It is where we are betwixt and between, having left one room or stage of life but not yet entered the next. We usually enter liminal space when our former way of being is challenged or changed. Perhaps when we lose a job, lose a loved one, or during an illness, at the birth of a child, or a major relocation. It's a graced time, but often does not feel graced in any way. In such space, we are not certain, and we're not in control. This global pandemic we now face is an example of an immense collective liminal space. See what he's talking about here? This is Dorothy and Oz, right? Oz is the liminal space between worlds, the world she knew and the world that she's going to, which will circle back and be the world she knew but changed because she was changed. This is the idea of the hero's journey, to be kicked out of the comfortable, familiar world that you know as a child, because it's about the whole journey of a, of a human being from birth to death, and in moving into the world of the adult. But every time that we lose the familiar, something that we are attached to, connect to, a person, a job, a place, whatever it is, throws us in to the doorway, throws us in to the liminal threshold, and then we feel that disorientation. Same thing with the rite of passage. This is woven deeply into who we are as a people. And it's woven deeply into the imagery of the New Testament where Jesus is talking about what the shape of his journey is and how, if we follow the shape of that way, things will change for us. Richard continues, the very vulnerability and openness of liminal space allows room for something genuinely new to happen. We are empty and receptive, erased tablets waiting for new words, Liminal space is where we are most teachable, often because we are most humbled. Last week we talked about that we are here. Our whole purpose here as human beings is to accept and experience our own vulnerability, to experience and accept our own fears. Because if we don't do that first within ourselves, then we can't identify with the fears and the vulnerabilities of others that are driving their dysfunctional behavior often that puts us at odds with each other. If we are going to forgive, if we are going to love those who are at odds with us, it is only because we have already accepted and experienced our own fears so that we can recognize them in the other and realize they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That whole process, there is no other way to connect and no other way to love as a human being without that process in place. Living in the awareness and acceptance of our vulnerability is living in liminal space between worlds. That's what it literally is. And what it feels like is uncomfortable until we start to accept it in a certain way. There is a woman that, uh, that wrote also this week in Richard Rohr's uh, meditation, it was a woman who received a cancer diagnosis two years ago, which required a really difficult surgery. 
Like many who are on earnest spiritual journeys, she allowed the painful and challenging experience to transform and guide her. And this is what she wrote. When we find ourselves in liminal space, does it matter whether we are pushed or whether we jump? Either way, we are not where or what we were before, nor do we know how or where we will land in our new reality. We are betwixt and between. In that space, which is mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual, we are destabilized, disoriented. The old touchstones, habits, and comforts are now past. The future, unknown. We only wish such a time to be over. We may be impatient to pass through it quickly with as little distress as possible, even though that is not likely. But what if we can choose to experience this liminal space and time, this uncomfortable now, as a place and a state of creativity, of construction and deconstruction, of choice and transformation? I wonder whether it is then also the realm of the Holy Spirit, our comforter, who does not take away the vastness and possibility of this opened-up threshold time, but invites us to lay down our fears and discomfort to see what else is there, hard as that may be. One transformation in this liminal time of cancer treatment and recovery was my recognition that the staggering vulnerability I was experiencing was not weakness, not shameful, but the source of what would allow me to survive and eventually to thrive. I allowed others to see me, not just my broken, lopsided face, but also my pain, sorrow, disappointment, and discouragement, as well as my gratitude, resilience, joy, and recovery. This is what I meant about being a pastor, to be invited into that process, to be allowed to see the vulnerability of others, to see them in their hospital beds or see them not at their best. That is a huge compliment. It's a huge sign of trust for any of us to be allowed into each other's lives at these difficult times. Jesus called it the sign of Jonah when he was asked for a sign. It is that movement into the darkness, into the pit, into the grave, into the belly of the sea monster, and then coming back up the other side. There is no substitute for that threshold time, that doorway. And yet when we go into the doorway, it's so uncomfortable, all we want to do is pray it away and get back out the other side. But really, the the whole key is to stay in that space long enough that we start to understand that this is what life really is, that we really do live between heaven and earth. And to pray away the liminal time is to pray away everything that our life is about, everything that makes us who we are, and everything that'll take us where we really want to go. To stay in that place long enough to understand this is what spirituality, what Jesus' way what contemplative spirituality is all about. She continues, like Jonah in the belly of the sea monster, we are led where we do not want to go. Not once, but many times in our lives. Dwelling in unsettling liminal space, whether we are pushed or whether we jump, we are led to draw on resources and possibilities we may not have tapped before. 
In the unknown space between here and there, younger and older, past and future, life happens. And if we attend, we can feel the Holy Spirit moving with us in a way that we may not be aware of in more settled times. In liminal time and space, we can learn to let reality, even in its darkness, be our teacher, rather than living in the illusion that we are creating it on our own. We can enter into the liminal paradox, a disturbing disturbing time and space that not only breaks us down, but also offers us the choice to live in it with fierce aliveness, freedom, sacredness, companionship, and awareness of presence. Everything that the people in our community that have been going through that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, the illness, the surgery, the treatment, the death, even the homelessness, has pushed them into a doorway, pushed them into liminal space, whether they know it or whether they don't, but they're there. And of course, it's caused anxiety. Of course, it's caused depression and anger. All the usual suspects are emotional responses to this kind of time in our lives. But in most of our people, there's also been this sense of awareness of something happening, something that they need to pay attention Now, for them and for the rest of us in this lockdown, we've become contemplatives by catastrophe. We've gone through the stripping down process. We've gone down to the solitude and the quietness and the stillness um, by, by no choice of our own, by catastrophe. We were pushed into this. But I've been really not only impressed and amazed, but just grateful that so many of us are doing really well very well, in spite of everything that they're going through. And I was thinking about this, and I believe it's because before we were pushed into this, before they were pushed into the layers of the things that they're going through, we jumped. I mean, think about it. Our people have been going through for years the contemplative process, learning about what this is all about. Trying to be contemplatives by intention. Doing the process of the stripping away. And that has prepared many of us to be pushed into these particular circumstances. The trying to practice the awareness, the stripping away of the, of the distractions is creating doorways and liminality that prepares us for what life is going to throw at us at some point. But then, as a nation and as a society, what's happening is more of a digging in and more and more of an entrenched, either inside or outside the doorway awareness. If you think about it, in just about every issue that we're facing, people are not allowing anyone to stay in the doorway, to stay in a middle place. It's as if someone who isn't sold out to the one group or to the other group is suspect. Someone who sees virtue in all sides of an issue is either a traitor or a hypocrite. There seems to be no in-between. It's binary. It's white, black. It's off, on. It's you're with me or you're against me. But that middle place, that doorway, that threshold that sees both sides seems to be what can't be tolerated in our discourse at the larger level. We are actually, if you think about it, beating into silence or just ignoring altogether 
those at the threshold who would have the most to say to us right now, whose words would come out of that larger space that would allow us to be able to come together and start to heal the divide that we find ourselves in. And it's funny how both sides or all sides of an issue imagine that Jesus would be on their side. That's just sort of goes without saying. Even for people who don't believe in Jesus, they want to co-opt Jesus because it's a powerful symbol. But Jesus, as one who lived his whole life, think about it, Jesus lived his whole life and his ministry in liminal space, in the doorway, on the threshold, between all of these different competing groups and issues and attitudes and ideas and concepts. And Jesus would disappoint and infuriate any true believer in any one cause because he was always occupying the common ground between all causes, between all parties. Very different kind of, of place to be. David Brooks wrote an amazing article, and this is actually about four years old, but I'll tell you what, it's only gotten more relevant, more pertinent, more insistent, <laughs> maybe more plaintive at the same time today. And I want to read a little bit of it to you. Listen to what he's saying, because this is so important for us to get as we're trying to thread our way and navigate through the difficulties that we're facing right now, not only within our own families and lives, but also larger. He writes, in any organization, there are some people who serve at the core. These insiders are in the rooms where the decisions are being made. Then there are outsiders. They throw missiles from beyond the walls. They are untouched by internal loyalties and try to take over from without. But there's also a third position in any organization. Those who are at the edge of the inside. I love that term, the edge of the inside. These people are within the organization, but they're not subsumed by the groupthink. They work at the boundaries, bridges, and entranceways. I borrow this concept from Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest who lives in Albuquerque. His point is that people who live at the edge of the inside have crucial roles to play. As he writes in his pamphlet, The Eight Core Principles, when you live on the edge of any group, you are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in a very new and creative way. A person at the edge of inside can see what's good about the group and what's good about rival groups. What a concept. Rohr writes, a doorkeeper must love both the inside and the outside of his or her group and know how to move between these two loves. A person at the edge of inside can be the strongest reformer. This person has the loyalty of a faithful insider, but the judgment of the critical outsider. Martin Luther King Jr. had an authentic inner experience of what it meant to be American. This love allowed him to critique America from the values he learned from America. He could be utterly relentless in bringing America back closer to herself precisely because his devotion to American ideals was so fervent. A person on the edge of the inside knows how to take advantage of the standards and practices of an organization but not be imprisoned by them. Rohr writes, you have learned the rules well enough to know how to break the rules properly, which is not really to break them at all, but to find their true purpose, not to abolish the law, but to complete it. 
The person on the edge of insight is involved in constant change. The true insiders are so deep inside, they often get confused by trivia and locked into the status quo. The outsider is throwing bombs and dreaming of far-off transformational revolution. But the person at the doorway is seeing constant comings and goings. As Rohr says, involved in a process of perpetual transformation, not a belonging system, more interested in being a searcher than a settler. Insiders and outsiders are threatened by those on the other side of the barrier. But a person on the edge of inside neither idolizes the us nor demonizes the them. Such a person sees different groups as partners in a reality that is paradoxical, complementary, and unfolding. I want you to think about that for a second, what he's saying. Because this is Yeshua. This is Jesus. This is a portrait of who he really was. Always in the doorway between competing groups. Always occupying the common space. Finding the common space. And then radically holding on to it. Never letting go. That honoring of all. At the same time having the ability to critique all. He was equal opportunity. He critiqued everyone. (laughs) He critiqued his own followers. He critiqued his own system, his own people. He critiqued those outside when they needed to be, but never at the expense of loving and honoring everyone who approached him. It was that middle place, that place of the doorway, that place of the threshold. And so he ended up, in course, infuriating everyone or devastating everyone. Brooks continues, there are downsides to being at the edge of inside. This is fascinating. You never lose yourself in a full commitment if you remain in the doorway. You may be respected and befriended, but you're not loved as completely as the people at the core, the band of brothers. You enjoy neither the purity of the outsider nor that of the true believer. But the person on the edge of inside can see reality clearly. The insiders and the outsiders tend to think in dualistic ways, us versus them, this or that. But as Rohr would say, the beginning of wisdom is to fight the natural tendency to be dualistic. It is to fight the natural ego of the group. The person on the edge of inside is more likely to see the wholeness of any situation, to see how us and them, which seem superficially opposed are actually in complementary relationship within some larger process. Abraham Lincoln could see the divisions between North and South, but in his second inaugural, he transcended these divisions and saw both North and South as actors and partners in a larger human drama. Now, Lincoln is one of my all-time heroes. He was just an amazing person in this respect. He lived in the doorway He lived in that liminal space. When you know enough about his family life and and his own physical maladies that he had to navigate and what he was faced with as president, you realize this was a man who lived in that place. And if you haven't read his second inaugural address, please read it. But I'm going to read just a little section right now and see if you can hear what we're talking about, what I'm talking about, what Brooks is talking about in this. Lincoln, second inaugural address, Saturday, March 4th, 1865. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it, 
all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, urgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work that we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which we may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Amazing words. An amazing ability to see beyond the cost of the conflict to all parties. And yet five weeks later, he was dead. By identifying with both groups, he put himself into that no man's land. He didn't see two nations. He didn't see two groups. He saw one nation and one people. And so he ended up with enemies on both sides who couldn't understand his tolerance for the other side. To many in the north, he was a betrayer. He was a, 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 a traitor. and the south, he was a tyrant. But he stood his middle ground trying to serve both. Brooks continues, when people are afraid or defensive, they have no tolerance for the person at the edge of inside. They want purity, rigid loyalty, and lockstep unity. But now, more than ever, we need people who have the courage to live on the edge of inside, who love their parties and organizations so much, who have the courage to live on the edge, to love them so much that they can critique them as a brother, operate on them from the inside as a friend, and dauntlessly insist that they live up to their truest selves. And moving back to Richard Rohr, the edge of things is liminal space, the very sacred space where guardian angels are especially available and needed. Don't you love that? Guardian angels, especially available and needed. The edge is a holy place, or as the Celts called it, a thin place, and you have to be taught how to live there. Think about Moses just doing his life as a shepherd for 40 years, and he sees the bush that is burning but not consumed. And the moment that he turns away to go look at it, he is entering the doorway, entering the liminal space, entering sacred ground. The Lord tells him to take off his shoes. He's no longer in Kansas anymore. 
but it was also his Kansas experience. It was his shepherd consciousness that allowed him to see what was actually happening and was attracted to it, was attracted enough and driven enough to move into the place he didn't understand, to move into the discomfort, to move into the place between worlds, and then from there to be drawn into the next 40 years of his life. Sacred ground. To take your position on the spiritual edge of things is to learn how to move safely in and out, back and forth, across and return. It's a prophetic position, not a rebellious or an antisocial one. When you live on the edge of anything with respect and honor, and this is crucial, the honor, you are in a very auspicious and advantageous position. You are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in new and creative ways. When you are at the center of something, you usually confuse essentials with non-essentials, and you get tied down by trivia, loyalty tests, and job security. Not much truth can happen there. You remember when we talked about the four stages of, of spiritual growth? It's been a while, I think. But to paraphrase Scott Peck's version of the four stages, the first stage is complete identification only with self and the needs of the self, and it's all about survival and moving the self forward. Stage two is where the individual graduates from just identification with self to identification with the group. Now, it's the group survival instincts that animate all the choices. It's the group think. It's the group connection that is the, the, the basic core of that stage. Stage three is when you get kicked out of the nest, when something happens that so, is so different than what you had thought you believed that you end up in the wilderness place outside of any group. And then stage four is when you move into the doorway, the threshold, where now you're in this ecumenical space, you're in the common space, where you can honor every group, every person, and yet have your own passionate core beliefs at the same time. This is that move to stage four, to, to not only enter the liminal space, by being pushed, but to jump there by intention and to stay there in that place, to learn to live with the, the balance and the, the, the disorientation in such a way that it becomes your normal. It becomes the place that you will occupy for the rest of your life, as Jesus did, as many spiritual giants did and do. To live on the edge of insight is different than being an insider, a company man, or a dues-paying member. Yes, you have learned the rules and you understand and honor the system as far as it goes, but you don't need to protect it, defend it, or promote it. It has served its in initial and helpful function. You have learned the rules well enough that you know how to break the rules properly, which is not really to break them at all, but to find their true purpose. Not to abolish the law, but to complete it, as Jesus rightly puts it. A doorkeeper must love both the inside and the outside of his or her group and know how to move between these two loves. What he's quoting here and what he's getting at is Jesus in Matthew 5, where Jesus is talking about the law. He's redefining the law. He's trying to get us to understand this very concept. The Jews of his time and Christians of this time believe that all we need to do is just follow the law, obey the law, 
Keep the contract with God and everything will be all right. And Jesus is saying, unless you can exceed that, unless you're willing to move from that side of the door into the doorway so that you can see both sides of what is going on here, you can't have the kingdom that I'm talking about. At Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The most important thing that Jesus says here in this passage is that until heaven and earth pass away, the law is in force. The law is essential. But that we have to then exceed that in some way. And once again, the Aramaic comes to our rescue because the word that is translated pass away here is the word abar. And abar literally means to cross a threshold, to cross a boundary. It's the same idea. Heaven and earth, living between heaven and earth, our job as humans is to bring the two together, to cross the boundaries, to merge the two in effect. When we think of heaven and earth passing away, we literally and normally and typically think of the end of all things, end time scenario, a transition of this life and this world and this existence into the next one. But that keeps it remote. That keeps it outside of ourselves. And we need to know by now that all of Jesus' context is always going to be here now and within us as individuals because that's where everything moves from inside to outside. The idea of heaven and earth passing away is when we as individuals, merge the two in our own lives, step into stage four spirituality, get to the place where we interiorly, standing in the doorway, can see both sides, all sides of the argument, all sides of issues, find the commonality between the two, and remain in that place balanced as best we can. At that moment, the law is not only no longer needed, it is completely fulfilled. The law is only needed for those at one side or the other. Throwing stones at the other side, the law is there to keep us all in check, to allow us to survive long enough until we can finally move into the doorway, move into the liminal space, and see how we all live together. And how do we do that? At Luke 9.51, there's a great story when The days were approaching for Jesus' ascension. He was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements. But they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. These are the Samaritans who are at odds with the Jews. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. How is it that we attain this doorway experience? Well, it's not going to be dualistically. It's not going to be reinforcing this us and them scenario. 
Jesus' followers, if they weren't for Jesus, then they were against them, and they wanted to punish those. And Jesus says, no. We're here to bring everything together. It's a completely different experience. At verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, that has traditionally been interpreted as Jesus did not have a home, a physical home. He was itinerant. He was always moving around. But think of it in terms of what we're talking about here. If Jesus continually occupies the doorway, continually occupies this liminal space, then he is never fully in any one camp, and he's never fully accepted in anyone's camp who is fully has drunk the Kool-Aid in their own space. He doesn't have a place to be. If you want to follow me wherever you go, then you're going to be in the same place. Just understand. You're going to be like a man or a woman without a country. There isn't going to be one place that will accept you wholly. But you will accept everyone wholly. At verse 59, he said to another, follow me. But that man said, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and claim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, it sounds kind of harsh. He just wanted to bury his dad. But in that culture, it could mean living with his parents until they died and then bury them. Or it could be the, the time between the first burial and the second burial, which could be up to a year. But what is Jesus really getting at here? It's not an either-or proposition. I don't do this and then not do that. Everything can happen simultaneously. You can bury your father. You can live with your father until he dies. You can do whatever you need to do within the context of your relationships and responsibilities. And you can proceed, proceed along toward kingdom at the same time. If you're using this to put off that, or if you're still seeing the world dualistically, then you're not anywhere in the realm of being able to follow the path that I'm on. And then finally, at verse 61, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Also sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But the idea here is that we cannot spend our time pining or grieving about the change, about the transition, about what we left behind, about the old normal that is no longer there as we move into the doorway and stand on the threshold of the new normal. He's trying to show us how to be whole. He's trying to show us how to live comfortably within this liminal space. And finally, with Roar, when you live on the edge of the inside, you will almost wish you were outside. When you're merely an enemy, a pagan, a persona non grata, and can be largely ignored, written off, or even consider yourself martyred and special. But if you are both inside and outside, you're an ultimate threat, a possible reformer, and a lasting invitation to a much larger world. Jesus always stood in the doorways, always. He stood in the transitions between all the black and white that we constantly see as a people. He stood in the middle. And if that sounds wishy-washy to you, if that just sounds like shades of gray, if that sh- sounds non-committal, 
or even cowardly to you, I want you to think again. It's anything but. To stand in the middle, on the threshold, in the doorway, is the hardest, most difficult place that we can possibly stand, trying to balance all these things, trying to find the common ground. Jesus was passionately committed. There's no other way that you can interpret the record of the New Testament, of the Gospels. He was completely sold out to everything that he believed, but what he was sold out to was unity, was the connection, not to any one power group, not to any one group. He was a completely sold out Jew, but he broke the oral law for the sake of unity, on purpose, held it in the face of the Pharisees, and that infuriated them. But he needed to do it for the sake of the people. He praised a Roman centurion, (laughs) which enraged the Jews who were fighting Rome for their own independence. He praised and conversed with Samaritans, another hated group, which enraged the Jews who were trying to maintain their ethnic and their theological purity. He overturned tables and criticized the temple system that was the the cornerstone of Judaism for a thousand years. And he enraged the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, who were the overseers of of that system. He refused to take power, and he finally, in the end, allowed himself to be crucified, which devastated his own followers. If Jesus enraged and devastated all the groups of his own day, of his own people, what do you think he's going to do to ours if he were here now? Jesus' choices, Jesus' convictions make absolutely no sense to any one group that you may find yourselves in. Jesus' choices and convictions only make sense to all groups at the same time. At the same time. It only makes sense, it only makes allegiance to the all, to unity. We have been pushed into doorways now, collectively, individually. Some of us into doorways within doorways. What are you going to do with this golden opportunity that has been handed to you? This opportunity of liminal space, of finding yourself in a doorway, in a way that you cannot change. You don't have the control to change it right now. If we pray it away, if we mentally end it by jumping to one side or another against the other, then we will have missed the hour of our visitation. And there is no transformation that will come of this forced time of liminal space. But for those of us who jumped before we were pushed, who chose to be contemplative by intention before they were made contemplative by catastrophe, for those of us who will choose to stay in this doorway, on the edge of inside, aware of what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it and how it works, for those of us who can stay in that place, we will start to be able to see with the Father's eyes. And you will make enemies on both sides of your doorway. That's inevitable. But as you do, you will also see the truth that you can't see from either side. And that is the truth that will make you free. Let's pray.
Father, this is difficult stuff, the most difficult. We are praying to you from the crux of human life and human experience and human nature. And of course, you understand that perfectly well. In all the difficulties we face, in all the fears and vulnerabilities that all of this has laid bare, help us to remain on the point, on the horns of the dilemma. Help us to stay in the doorway, on the threshold, long enough to begin to realize what it is showing us of your view of things as opposed to ours. Father, we pray that we can see life, our own lives and everyone else's life, more through your eyes, to see the commonality, to see the unity overlaid on all of the complexity and diversity. We want to see the oneness of everything in every moment so that we can make our choices that bring us all together and connect us. Thank you for everything that you've given us, all the tools, all the prophets, all the models in our life who show us what this looks like. Help us to see them and listen to them and follow that way, that shape, so that we can see more and more with your eyes. Thank you for your love. Thank you for everything that you give us to sustain this journey. And never let us forget, we can only do it because you did it first. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. One last thing to do. Take virtual hands across the water. (laughs) Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have a great rest of Sunday. We hope to see you Tuesday night at 6.30, Wednesday night at 6.30, and then back here streaming at 10 on next Sunday. But have a wonderful week in Christ, in our Lord. See you soon.